I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Taylor Branch. Taylor is the author of several books, including the best-selling Pulitzer Prize winning Parting the Waters, America in the King Years, 1953 to 63, and most recently, The Clinton Tapes. Branch began his career as a magazine journalist for the Washington Monthly, Harper's, and Esquire. He lives in Baltimore, Maryland. Please join me in welcoming Taylor Branch. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here tonight. Rand Corporation and Zocalo Public Square. What a nice combination. Get people to think. Zocalo Public Square. Zocalo means public square, so Zocalo Public Square means public square, public square, or <laughs> public square squared. Um, <clears throat> Driving home the point that it's about the public square, which is perfect for me because that's right over the heart of the plate for me. The bond that Bill Clinton and I had, uh, if any, that we started this project with was a strange one as fellow white Southerners who believed uh, that, we that we lived in an alternate universe from what ought to be relating to the public square, growing out of our heritage as Southerners who lived through the Civil Rights Movement and thought the Civil Rights Movement was the greatest thing that ever happened for advancing freedom, not only for ending terror in the South, ending segregation, answering problems that made politicians and intellectuals alike uh, buckle at the knee, but also rescued the white South economically, psychologically, and financially, even, even athletically. Uh, made it fit for the Atlanta Braves and the Atlanta Falcons, uh, where we had never had professional sports in the stigmatized white South. Set loose freedom for women, for immigrants that have changed the face of this country since Lyndon Johnson said the Immigration Reform Act of 1965 means that no foreigner is too foreign to be a fellow citizen. An invisible uh, freedom that has changed this country. Clinton and I shared the belief that in a, in a sane world, the value of the public square after the 1960s would have appreciated significantly and we would have all studied the miracles that were wrought and said we can work more miracles. The public square is enlarged, it's enhanced that in spite of the upheavals, it did wonderful things. Hooray for politics. Politics is the key to liberty. There's a reason that all of our great patriots lived and died and risked to, make, to enlarge the public square and the things that can be done therein. Instead, of course, precisely since the 1960s, the public square is atrophied in many respects. The dominant idea in politics is that government is bad, or as Clinton used to say to me in the White House, that government can't organize a two-car funeral. Um, <laughs> that it is not only inept, but that it is malevolent and needs to be strangled. How can you reconcile this dominant view and this curdled notion of the public square with the record of the United States in its history, and particularly with the formative years that meant so much to him and me. I said in the first uh, page or two that he and I, as Southerners, tended to use the same words, heal and reform, as what was necessary in our politics. But he would always emphasize think above uh, all else. So we, we came at this thing with something of a mission about where we are feeling that our politics and our political culture is disjoined from accurate history, which is a perilous thing for our country. His stated mission in the White House was to lift the veil of cynicism about politics and about what we can accomplish together in the public uh, square uh, against a relentless tide of uh, opposition, which is normal, uh, of cynicism, which is dangerous, and of 
nihilism's not quite word, the, 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 the notion that politics is merely for entertainment, kind of a condescension about politics that reduces it more or less to the level of a high school election about who's cool and who's fun uh, or not, which drains a lot of the significance out of it. Now, so we had a, lo a lot of bonds, but I, I want to emphasize from the beginning, if you're interested here in the Clinton tapes, that it's totally different from the, the work in... I spent 25 years writing about the civil rights movement that yanked Clinton and me alike from non-political families into a lifelong uh, enthrallment with politics against our will. I had to do the... the, the um, civil rights book. Um, I was possessed. I was enthralled. I wanted to do it. I did not have to do this book. It was not my idea. Uh, it was his idea. I would have done it for any president. I was glad to do it for him because we had the connection and it wouldn't have, we had an old connection. But he revived it. It was at his initiative and um, came out of nowhere. I had known him in the anti-war era we were sent to Texas to run the McGovern campaign, uh, the two of us, because the Texas Democrats were feuding as always and they wanted non-Texas Southerners to try to mitigate the Civil War down there <laughs> between the Ralph Yarbrough liberals and the liberal Johnson, Lyndon Johnson conservatives. According to Clinton's memory, he still resents that I was the one that drew the straw to go out when Lyndon Johnson finally gave his tepid endorsement of George McGovern uh, at the LBJ ranch with hair down to his shoulders uh, short, just a few months before Johnson died. Um, I didn't get any closer than that spotlight back there, but uh, I did get to go. He talked me into taking responsibility for fundraising in Texas, uh, which was a suicide mission if there ever was one. Um, <laughs> I don't think that he had uh, ulterior motives, but it, it worked out that when we had to fire the first uh, employee uh, in a beleaguered campaign, he came to me and said, um, we are many points down in the polls, our morale is low, and, um, and because we don't have any money and you're always telling everybody in the staff they can't do whatever they want to do, you're pretty unpopular already. Uh, most <laughs> so... If you fire this person, it's probably not going to hurt any of the morale around here. And it stands to reason that you should be the designated firer. Um, and he had kind of a folksy, uh, folksy genius uh, to him. But I would be lying if I told you that I thought he was a future president of the United States. We lost Texas by 30 points in a landslide uh, to Nixon. And I didn't think that either one of us had a future in politics. Um, but he kept going, and I went back into writing, pretty disillusioned about politics uh, in that period. Years later, decades later, uh, when he was leaving the White House, he told me that sometimes he envied me that I'd spent my 20-something years writing about Martin Luther King. And I told him, well, I'm standing on just the opposite side of that because... I chose writing because I thought there was more integrity in the written word than in debased politics, and I now find you much more idealistic than most of my friends in the press who are writing about politics today. So we were each kind of looking across a chasm of uh, odd life's choices caught up in this historical conundrum uh, that I mentioned uh, to you. Um, our reunion, I did not see him because we split so much for 20 years. From the time we left Texas in the end of 1972, we broke up. Hillary was there, his new girlfriend. The three of us had an apartment together. We broke up. I saw her some in Washington when she was agonizing over whether she would hitch her star to this guy in Arkansas uh, and leave the bright lights of impeachment where she was on the impeachment committee. Uh, we had lunch occasionally, and she would balefully look at me and say, have you ever been to Little Rock? Um, and as, as first lady, she begged me not to repeat that, but she, she did remember it. She was afraid it would insult her, 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 her friends. Um, but I didn't see them forever, and I got word after the election in 1992 from somebody in the office that the president-elect 
would like for my wife and me to come to a dinner. And would we do it? Because he had something he wanted to say. And we were utterly mystified, and we went down to this incredibly glamorous dinner at Catherine Graham's house in Washington to welcome the president-elect. And there are ambassadors and Supreme Court justices and uh, the Joint Chiefs and... uh, uh, Alan Greenspan from the Fed and Bob McNamara and all these luminaries were there. And in all the tables, there were maybe 30 or 40 tables of eight, including one way in the corner that was the vice president's table. And Christie was seated next to the vice president. And in the other corner was the president's table. And I'm seated next to the president. And he comes in a beeline with all of these people around him kind of fighting to get close to him and secret service agents. And there's a buzz, and he comes right to me, stations two Secret Service agents to hold back the crowd for a minute, and says, I've only got a second. Can you believe all this? <laughs> um, first words in 20 years. In just the time that it took to say that, it dispelled somewhat to my shame the notion that I had had that 20 years of Arkansas chicken dinners had processed him into a different creature who would be naturally a stranger to me and that I would not recognize him. Um, I knew instantly that the same boyish Bill Clinton that I had known was there and that there are a certain number of people in life that you cannot see for 50 years and you can still have that connection. And I was ashamed of myself for believing so staunchly otherwise. Um, that, that, that he had been corrupted by politics. Then he said, in much less time than I just explained my reaction, he said, I want you to think about one thing. Will you do it for me? I've been reading Parting the Waters and the footnotes in your reference notes from presidential libraries. And I am concerned about the records that will be in my presidential library. I want to know if you think the record gathering that is being done today will allow historians 50 years from now to breathe life into whatever happens in my administration the way you're trying to do for the Kennedy and Johnson era. And my jaw dropped, and the dam broke, and he got swept away, and I didn't see him the rest of the, rest of the night. But I'm sitting there saying, in two sentences, essentially, he connected with me personally, and then he connected intellectually um, in a stunning way that he's thinking about history even before he takes office. But more than that, he's thinking about history in a way that, is, that echoes, I don't know how he could have done it, by some instinct or luck or what, something that really had worried me that, that about historiography, that since Nixon's impeachment, no president has taped recordings, meetings, and certainly not phone calls. 95% of the tapes that have ever been made and every president from FDR through Nixon taped in the White House. 95% of them have not been transcribed yet. Uh, They are just beginning to be digested into the histories of how we understand what goes on in the White House. In other words, they are just beginning to be cranked into our understanding of how the most personal branch of government the only one vested in one person, all executive powers are vested in one person, functions in a people's government that matters so much to the public square that we're here about. How does, how does the public duty blend with the human being that occupies that office? The records are getting worse and worse. We don't have recordings, which will ultimately, when they're cranked in, help us understand, say, Lyndon Johnson and the Vietnam War. But we will only have our labels and our caricatures and our cartoons, I, I predict, to understand what George Bush was really saying when, before we went into Iraq and when we were searching for weapons of mass destruction or any of a number of other um, events of importance uh, about post-war presidents since Nixon. Clinton wanted to figure out what he could do remedially to make up for that to make the president human, good or bad. He had a number of ideas. It began a discussion after he went into the White House. Uh, He wanted me to come be his Arthur Schlesinger for a time. I told him that I thought that was impractical. 
and that he could get an Arthur Schlesinger, but I wouldn't recommend that he do it because it's not taken seriously. It wouldn't be seen as objective. And even, even Arthur uh, became almost as much a pundit as a historian uh, afterwards, and that you can't really control the history. Uh, the best you can do is to make the best history you can and keep as vivid a records as you can um, and, and, and trust the future that they'll sort it out. In many, many generations, every president's reputation ebbs and flows. But in checking things out, I, the bureaucratic resistance to keeping good notes has grown immeasurably. His own people told me flat out, if there's a note taker in the room, uh, I leave. Uh, Tony Lake, national security advisor, my former classmate uh, in graduate school, said, Averill Harriman told me, don't write anything down, do everything on the telephone, it's a good way of staying out of jail. Um, <laughs> George Stephanopoulos wouldn't take notes in meetings because he considered it beneath him. I, I told him that Bill Moyers had a very healthy ego, and he took notes about meetings on Vietnam and left them as part of the government record. John Podesta, who started off as staff secretary, later became chief of staff, told me that he had voluminous records, voluminous, and that historians will enhance them, inherit them. And they, they tell you everything about the meeting, the agenda, what went on, everything, he says, and they are perfectly designed to cover the ass of every participant in the meeting <laughs> and tell you everything except exactly what happened in flesh and blood. And that's what we're going to inherit uh, if we don't do something about it. If it were up to me, we would have a mature, be a mature enough country and a historically-minded enough country to have a debate about whether we could tape all of the president's business and keep our mitts off of it uh, for a designated period of 10 or 20 years, whatever people think is right, and then be able to study in detail so that future generations over time could have a more realistic notion of the range of humanity and the range of interaction between personality and public duty in an office that matters uh, so much to us. Uh, we couldn't do that. Clinton hit on the idea of doing an oral history instead. Uh, paradoxically, he said, if we want to do this in the interest of helping people it be more open, the government be more open, we have to do it in absolute secrecy now because if it leaks out, uh, there will be a huge hue and cry. By that time, Whitewater had already started, and he said, and Vince Foster, by the, by the time we got going, Vince Foster was already killed. He said, they'll, they'll say that they need these tapes to find out why I really killed Vince Foster um, or some other part of a, a scandal. So we had to do it secretly, which meant keep, stay away from the, white, the West Wing and all of his staff. He said his staff were the first people who would leak it, uh, and the thing would go away. So we wound up meeting in the residence, in the, where only the, the um, residential staff, the butlers, the stewards, the valets, the ushers, uh, the household staff, um, and we did it always at night. And almost always on zero notice. I'd get a call at 5 o'clock after spending a, a day deeply immersed in the 1960s in Selma or the Meredith March or something, and I would get a call saying, can you come down tonight? And I would grab my little recorders, and I would go down, drive down to Washington from Baltimore, where I live, and my notes, and I would get cleared into the White House, which was always an adventure. Not into the White House, but to park under the Truman Balcony on the South Lawn. Um, and sometimes it was an adventure because my wife made me take our pickup truck. She kept the car, and <laughs> it's not easy to get cleared into the, uh, into the <laughs> South Lawn in a pickup truck um, late at night, and people don't know who you are, and a lot of the guards would say, sure, you're supposed to see the president. Um, one guy even said, uh, what does he want to see you about? I mean, he was so sure that I was a lunatic. But eventually I would get in, go into the usher's office and wait to find out what the ushers were saying. Sometimes it's the president is waiting for you. Sometimes it's the one night it was the president has gone to sleep in his barber chair and nobody can wake him up. Uh, can you help us? Uh, you never knew what was going to happen. And, you, and I would go up and set up wherever he wanted to tape 
And part of the glory of this is to go into the residential. We taped in so many different rooms. We taped in the treaty room, my favorite one, which is his upstairs office, just a, a few doors down from the bedroom. We taped in his little parlor or living room, which I didn't like because it had a TV in it. Um, and also his card table, where he would deal solitaire and work crossword puzzles while he's talking to me and often talking on the phone. So uh, I didn't like that one. I loved the treaty room. We, did, we taped out on the Truman balcony. We taped in his tiny little kitchen. Uh, we taped upstairs in the solarium on the third floor. We taped everywhere. I had my two little dictaphones. I'd say this is session number 49 or whatever number it is, such and such a date. This is what's happened since last time, Mr. President. Where should we start? And uh, the only rule was um, tape whatever we could. Get him to put what he wanted to do was to put on the record what would perish with his memory that was not and not otherwise be on the record. In other words, what he felt was really going on behind the scenes. By design, he kept those tapes. He still has them. Uh, in the second term, he trusted me enough. We had kept it secret for five years. To, that instead of, because I rewound them and labeled them at the end of every session and um, gave them to him. He had custody. If he got subpoenaed, he could decide whether to destroy them or not. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was safest. In the second term, he trusted me enough to say, I can't wait for you to rewind these tapes. I've got to go do something else. I'll show you where I keep them and you put them away. And he showed me that he had kept them in, his, in a, the two boxes I gave him in the back of his sock drawer in, um, in the closet right next to the bedroom. Uh, so I would put them away and make sure that they were still there. And then when he said goodbye, I would take those machines or one of the machines, pop another tape in, go get in my truck, and say, I'm leaving the White House, it's 1.45 in the morning on the such and such a day, and we had an amazing session tonight, and Chelsea came in for help with her homework. Uh, one night I, um, I said we were in the middle of Bosnia and uh, trying to figure out how we were going to get in the Dayton Peace Accord, and Newt Gingrich uh, um, was plaguing the president about this, that, or the other, and Hillary came in to tell me that she had just had a dream about Henry Kissinger. And... <laughs> So she proceeded to tell me the whole dream, and we're trying to figure it out. And it's about Vietnam and health care and all kinds of embarrassingly policy things. Um, and she, the, Hillary gets off a good line about Vietnam in the middle of the dream and then tells me, she says, I always get my revenge in dreams, never in real life. Um, <laughs> And then she went on and on, and, and she was a little embarrassed that she had a dream about this. Uh, and she says, you know, I was late in our generation. When I was at Wellesley, in the middle of all the upheaval over Vietnam, I went over to hear Kissinger lecture about the future of, of Europe at Harvard. And I waited not only through the whole lecture, very polite, while there were demonstrations outside against the war, but then I stood in line to ask a question, and I stood in line, I was the last one. And she was a little flustered because she realized that this made her really a goody two-shoes, pretty late, uh, atypical in our generation. So she said, I finally got up to the front of the line, I said, Dr. Kissinger, you gave this marvelous lecture about the future of Europe, but you never mentioned East or West Germany, right at the heart of Europe. What do you have to, why is that? What do you have to say about Germany? Uh, and he, she said, Kissinger looked at me and said, young lady, all of my thoughts about Germany are classified. <laughs> then she holds up her fingers, she says, scout's honor, that's what she says. And I was, I was the goody two-shoes who went up and asked him. Was, I put that in the book, uh, not only all of the dream, because I thought it was, um, um, it, it showed something, apocryphal or not, it showed something about two future historic characters, uh, the way they uh, uh, I interacted. Um, most of the book is uh, essentially two things, and I'll take your questions on the subjects of whatever you want, um, because it's too vast. It's everything that happened in the Clinton presidency. But it's his describing it, combined with my trying to describe, take a reader with me into the room 
uh, and some of my reactions at the time. This is not a historical judgment about the Clinton presidency. Uh, it's, I'm, too, I'm not impartial enough. This is a primary, primal experience. This was, an, uh, I'm trying to gather this record. So the only judgments I put in here are the judgments that I had at the time. What should I be asking him about? Am I asking the right questions? What do I do when he says, Taylor, should I fire Jim Woolsey as head of the CIA director, head of the CIA? If I say, Mr. President, I'm just here to ask questions uh, for the historical record, does our rapport diminish and he lose confidence in this and stop uh, talking about it? Am I also a citizen? Do I owe him my best advice? Who can I ask about this? It's a totally secret process. I can't tell anybody about it. So, uh, and some of it, quite frankly, is a little humorous because if you're there with the president and things intervene and the family intervenes and Chelsea comes in for help with homework and he assigns me to the homework while he takes a call from Warren Christopher about airstrikes in Baghdad, it, it seems and feels pretty surreal. Um, it can. Uh, but it is real. Um, and that's what it is. It's, it, it, it's, it's a record from start to finish. There are sometimes over Haiti and other things where there's a good bit of tension between us and where I'm even thinking that he's trying to use me as a sounding board or conscience. Um, he was furious when he lost the, both houses of Congress in 1994 and said... <laughs> I have been trying to do a good job to get this country on uh, economic footing, to end the deficit, which people thought was impossible and have for 25 or 30 years because I, because I think it's essential to be self-governing that we end this deficit, not just for financial reasons, but because um, you, the public square is inefficient as long as people can say their own government is incontinent, you know, that, it, that we can't control ourselves. How can we be self-governing? He says, I've done all of this. Unemployment is going down. We're in the right, um, on the right path, and they take both houses of Congress from me because the Republicans said this was going to wreck us and that government should be free and we should cut taxes and, and curb big government. He said, if the American people want that kind of government, I'll give it to them. I'll give them a middle-class bill of rights. What do you think, Taylor? Well, Mr. President, I don't think that's one of your better efforts. <laughs> no. What do you really think? And he bore in on me relentlessly until finally I told him, Mr. President, a Bill of Rights is a very fundamental political instrument. And you don't have one for one social class as though its provisions don't apply to any other social class. And even if you did, it wouldn't be a big string of tax cuts. And he says, well, by God, if the Republicans are going to pander, I can pander too, if that's what it takes to win elections. And I can pay for my tax cuts. They can't. And he went on and on. Um, and... My dictation that night said, um, this was not fun, and I, I took four Tylenol in the usher's office uh, before getting back in. But then, mercifully, the middle-class Bill of Rights died very quickly, and it went away. Um, so maybe he was using me as a um, sounding board. I don't know. We had lots of adventures. Um, uh, one night he asked me to spend the night, and... Um, my wife, uh, this is late, and this is during the impeachment trial. He wanted to talk some the next day. He asked me to stay over. Uh, my wife was working in the next office. This is well after midnight. I said, Christy is working, she was working with, uh, for Hillary as a speechwriter just for a year and a half, uh, right toward the end. But it happened to be, as, as she said, as her luck would have it from the the day the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke uh, until a few months after impeachment. That was her term. But she's over there working at 1 o'clock in the morning during the impeachment trial. And I said, um, I'm supposed to give her a ride home, but it's so late now, we would hardly get there, and then she'd have to turn around in the morning. She says, he said, well, both of you stay over. Hillary's, on a, Hillary's in Pakistan or somewhere. Hillary's away. I'm here by myself. So I picked up the phone, I called Christy over in her office, and I said, the president has invited us both to spend the night because he wants to work in the morning. Can you come over? He'll, he, he'll even turn down the sheets for us, <laughs> which was a joke, you know. But 
Christy comes over there, and sure enough, the president goes all the way down the hallway, this glorious hallway in the residence, into the queen's bedroom, um, and turns down the sheets, and, and looks up, kind of stunned, and says, there are no pillows here on this bed. So I'll go find some, he says, in the, in the, in the Lincoln bedroom. So we follow him to the Lincoln bedroom. Pulls down, no, no pillow in the Lincoln bedroom. Now he picks up the phone, calls the usher's office. Where's the household staff? They've all gone home, Mr. President, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, where are the pillows? Uh, I don't know, probably in a, in, a, in a closet. So we're rifling through closets, and <laughs> Christy and I are saying, Mr. President, there are nine bedrooms upstairs. We'll go up to the third floor. Don't worry about it. And we were feeling terrible, I mean, because he was out on his feet. He's in the middle of an impeachment trial. All this other stuff is, is going on, and we feel like we're imposing, and I feel terrible because all this started with my stupid joke that he would turn down the sheets, which, which was total nonsense. <laughs> he insisted on walking all the way back down the hall again to his bedroom. said, Hillary's not here. There are two pillows on the bed, plus he said, I have such a bad back, because he had all kind of medical problems that uh, never came out, and... A lot of them are in here. I had to catch spatter and lots of other things when he's being treated for allergies and this, that, and the other. But he says, I have this little chair pillow that I sleep half sitting up. So you can take both pillows. Thank you very much, Mr. President. We'll be out. You need to get some sleep. You have a full schedule in the morning. No, he grabs the pillows and starts to walk back all the way down the long. But then on the way, he detours holding the pillows into his treaty room office. And while he's talking to us about what a good session it was and how wonderful it is to have Hillary on the staff so that now she has some sort of sense of what he and I have been doing uh, all these years, he walks around compulsively and takes books off the shelf, looks at them, rearranges them back and forth, goes around to the next shelf and does it all the way around the perimeter of the treaty room, then goes down, finally puts the pillows on our bed, uh, in the Queen's room, says goodnight and leaves. And Christy looks to me uh, totally stunned and said, what was that? <laughs> and I said, I thought it was pretty nice. I was very embarrassed that he was doing it, but nobody would believe that the President of the United States just did all of this over a pillow. She says, no, I don't mean about the pillow. I mean, what was he doing in his office, uh, touching all those books? And I realized that he had been doing that sort of thing so much that I hardly noticed it. I said, oh, that. He has some sort of compulsive thing. He does that all the time. Don't worry about it. Um, so there are amazing moments. The president's a human being. The record he took, enormous risk and enormous effort to make, is sketched here. Um, there are things here that will not... When, he will release the actual verbatim tapes sometime because he made all of that effort and he took all that risk to do it. If you ask me, I don't think it'll be till Hillary retires one way or another, either, either does not run for president or leaves the secretary, but is out of politics. Uh, but I don't think it'll be long after that uh, that he will open it up because he made all this effort and he wants people that can interact with it and deny it or dispute it uh, to be able to do so. Um, my tapes are based, my book is based on my dictations. It has some things that won't be on the tapes, uh, my reactions and my personal reactions, but essentially it's the gist of it and what I remember that he said on every issue under the sun and the way his mind works. And to me, it's an introduction. If American people had a real sense of the presidency and the way at least this president's mind worked and engages in public issues, I think it would enlarge the public square, which so desperately needs enlarging today. So uh, I didn't know this when I came here and not really realized what the Zocalo's, Zocalo's mission was, but I think this book and this effort, this experiment in presidential history uh, fits well into that mission to enlarge the public square, and it's, and it's our duty, and as the media disintegrate, former uh, organizations like this will become more and more important because the public square will ever more depend on each citizen finding our own sources of information to make ourselves good citizens in the republic for which we are all equally responsible because we all have the same boat. Thank you.
the tapes uh, parallel with his, his own memoir? Well, his, that, that's, that's another uh, sore point in the last chapter, um, because he asked me to come read his, his memoir uh, in Chappaqua in February of 2004, and I read 700 pages and thought it was great, but I said, you hadn't even gotten to the White House yet, where's the rest of it? <laughs> and he says, well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, I was working on it this morning, and I was flabbergasted. I said, Mr. President, today is February 27th, 2004. They have announced your book for publication on Father's Day, which is mid-June. I mean, in a, in a, every other publisher on earth would have demanded that the book already be done. You cannot write your presidency uh, in the next six weeks or whatever it would take. Uh, he says, well, I'm going to try. Um, and I said, no, that's irresponsible, that's insane, and I went nuts, you know, saying, because I felt that the tapes could not, I said, because I had been saying all along, you have the mind and to write the best set of presidential memoirs since Grant, and those weren't even really about the presidency, of course, those were about the Civil War, uh, and you can do this, but you can't do it in six weeks, all you can do is kind of skim, and he said the publisher would sue him, and this, that, and the other, and I said, anyway, it got, I think the phrase I use, it, it got pretty warm um, be, because I told him he was the President of the United States and, he, and screw the publisher and he could tell them whatever they wanted. They, they either needed to delay it or, or divide it into two volumes, maybe after, you know, after he gets elected or goes one year or at most or something. Um, and it finally got so warm that he interrupted me and he says, Taylor, um, would you say all that to Hillary? Uh, so he goes upstairs in Chappaqua and gets Hillary and she comes down and it's, I, I kind of, it's the only time I've ever felt like a lawyer who was going from the appeals court up to the Supreme Court. And, and I repeated all these arguments about how he couldn't do this and everything. And uh, then I left and uh, uh, on Father's Day the book appeared. And... Uh, uh, we, uh, then he asked me down to see him, and we had a, some kind of reconciliation about it, but we never really understood exactly why it was on that schedule or what made him do it that way. I think that he avoided re-wrestling with all the issues that he had wrestled with in politics to a great degree in his memoirs. He never said that he wanted me to do it. I think he wanted the public to do it, but he knew. This book, by the way, was his idea. I mean, he told me toward the end of his, in his second term, when, after I do my memoirs, you might want to do a memoir on your experience because nobody's ever had this kind of experience with a sitting president. Um, uh, again, I would be lying if I hadn't thought of it already my, by then uh, myself, but I was immensely grateful that it was kind of his idea that he thought that the combination of a historical perspective and... and uh, and, and what he was saying might be a good appetizer, as it were, for uh, and supplement to whatever is on the tapes. So I don't really know what happened with his memoirs. He did use them, but the, the, the transcripts. Uh, but I don't really, I don't believe that he could have used them uh, very fully because whenever those tapes come out, they are incredibly intricate. Uh, I try to give the gist of it, but. He, he's not talking uh, to make it intelligible to anybody but people who are really up to speed in very specialized uh, politics. I mean, I knew how he loves politics in every sphere, but I knew when he told me that some New Mexico district had shifted from Democrat to Republican and that the key was because a very significant Sikh population had moved uh, from one district to another, and that that explained 80% of the vote differential or something. I mean, this, uh, this is a guy who takes politics um, uh, way as far as he can in every dimension. Hi, my name is Ralph Strau. I'd like to hear a little bit about your process in deciding how to write the book and what to write and when it was time to release it. Oh, thank you. Uh, good question. It was... <laughs> Well, first of all, I was consumed in finishing the, 25, the Martin Luther King uh, trilogy. Um, I didn't want to do anything until then. And, of course, 
uh, we had an agreement that I wouldn't even consider doing anything until his book was, his memoir, which was 2004. I finished the King Trilogy in 2006. That's the last time I was here in um, L.A. on book tour. Um, and um, by the middle of 2006, um, I was talking to my publisher about whether they thought that this was the right time, that enough time had passed uh, to do it. And um, so we reached a contract in the middle of 2006. Um, I started transcribing the tapes uh, with some help, uh, help from the publisher, among others. But, um, and it took all the rest of 2006. It's thousands of pages, all of which are now gone to the University of North Carolina, which has my civil rights pages and thousands of oral histories there. They and all of my dictation tapes and my notes to and from the president uh, and everything will be opened in January for, for uh, study, so before his tapes, I'm, I'm sure. But as to the process of actually writing the book, uh, it was very hard as a matter of craft. It's the first time I've ever written anything in the first person. I, I felt that to avoid a book of endless he said and then he said sentences um, that I had occasionally to give some sort of relief and context, what it was like, how he seemed. Uh, but I thought, and, and even my own reactions, especially when he's, when he's interacting with me and engaging uh, uh, with me. But as a matter of craft, it's a very difficult to have a two-person play when one character is you and the other is the President of the United States. So. Uh, the, the, the right voice and the right tone, uh, not to put myself in it too much, um, uh, which would be unseemly, and not to put myself in it so little that it would, because he did talk about politics so much that in a way my insertions were to give some relief, because a lot of it was when something personal would happen. You know, uh, like we'd get interrupted or Chelsea would come in to say goodnight or Chelsea would come in and say, oh, I didn't know you were taping. I'm sorry I was singing show tunes in the hallway. You know, little things like that would uh, break it up. And um, so essentially the craft of the book is to try to marry um, uh, historical gathering and observation uh, w with the, the experience of actually being in the White House. Uh, and it took me a long time fussing around with the voice to get that. But essentially, that's what I try to do. The very first chapter is right in the first... The first chapter is right in the first session. The president found me testing my recorders. Uh, the second chapter goes back to describe how this thing came about and the origin of our uh, relationship, um, which was... Uh, and how it came about, which is a pretty wild story. And then... Chapter 3 picks back up with the sessions and marches uh, all the way to the end. Fast forward to the 2008 campaign. Why do you think the media treated Hillary in such an anti-manner and treated her so shabbily? Well, I don't need to fast forward to the 2008 campaign. <laughs> um, because one of the things that Hillary and I would talk about a lot when she was First Lady was how mystified she was that the same reporters uh, could write willy-nilly on one day that she was uh, a ball buster intruding in matters of policy, that she was too masculine, uh, and the next day that she was baking cookies and trying to be uh, a traditional First Lady. And in her analysis, it didn't really matter uh, what the answer was, and it was not approximating anything that mattered at all. It was just that each of those stories could get a rise out of people on one side or another, and therefore it stirred some froth. Uh, that reliably went all the way through, everywhere she went. Um, the media in general is a big story in, in this book. Some of it is predictable. All presidents rant and rail about their press coverage. He ranted more than most people for several different reasons, I think. One is that we, he and I, had idolized the press uh, in the civil rights era so much. I mean, I write about it a lot in my um, uh, King trilogy. To me, a lot of those reporters are real heroes, and their barometers, uh, their stories are barometers of what we did and didn't notice about what was going on in the civil rights movement. So to have the New York Times win the Pulitzer Prize for Jeff Gerst's stories about 
Chinese nuclear spying and Clinton selling the White House uh, for campaign contributions uh, was just a profound shock uh, to him because he was so disillusioned. Uh, of course, that's disillusioning about the Pulitzer Board, too, but uh, about the times that they pursued it, right down to the point that Wen Ho Lee served a year in, you know, uh, not even seeing daylight out here on something that was pretty much totally trumped up. Um, he endlessly theorized about the press and how this could be um, in 1994. Uh, some of it was in the ballpark of Hillary's grand conspiracy. Uh, he didn't like that, though, because he thought it was for convergent reasons that the media liked the tabloid sport and, and, the, and the Republicans liked the tabloid stuff because they couldn't compete on policy. So they just, they wanted the tabloid sport because otherwise all they were saying was no because they didn't believe in enlarging the public square. So there's a lot of press stuff in here and um, I don't really know what the answer was except that he did have this, he said he was never upset with politicians who said the nastiest things about him or tried to impeach him. He thought that was part of politics. And... Uh, uh, if anyone who reads this, I think, will be as amazed as I was that he had such a, a surprisingly human relationship with Newt Gingrich, um, Trent Lott, uh, certainly Bob Dole. He says, and any foreign leader who said anything about him, the nastiest thing possible, if they were doing it to survive in the politics of, of, of their own environment, he respected them for it and he never complained. His complaint was about the media that he felt, and Hillary also felt, that's another whole story, uh, had a duty to present a higher agenda because he had idolized that agenda from, from our youth. Uh, so um, it's a pretty rough story. I mean, from day one, I have a complaint about the media. Even though in the book it says... It starts in Gays in the Military, Chapter 1, our very first session, we get into it. Uh, Senator Byrd's impassioned speech he quoted uh, about Suetonius, the Roman senator, who said that homosexuality destroyed the Roman Empire since Julius Caesar seduced the king Nicomedes of Bithynia in modern Turkey. And every wag in Rome said that Julius Caesar after that was every woman's man and every man's woman. Um, <laughs> that this was the seed and all this stuff. Well, this is gays in the military. The New York Review of Books, review of my book, says that Clinton made a fundamental error and that I didn't see it uh, to make gays in the military his first priority um, against the advice of gay leaders. And he went on to quote gay leaders who told him not to do it, including my friend David Mixner, who lives out here. Um, well... Gays in the military was not Clinton's choice. It was not his agenda. The book says, and he quotes Clinton saying, they, they kicked me coming in the door and they kicked me again going out the door with, uh, with the Mark Rich pardon. Coming in, he said, we had been having meetings all through the transition on the economic agenda, the Budget Act, the stimulus package, and reviving the economy. That's what we'd run on. I wake up in the White House the first morning, there's a picture of me giving the inaugural address and a huge headline, column one, New York Times, Clinton, first initiative, integrating gays and lesbians into military service. He said that came about because a reporter went to one of my eager young aides and said, did the, did the president mean all his campaign pledges, all 412 of them? Yes. Does that include the pledge to integrate gays and lesbians into military service? Yes. Clinton to integrate gays and lesbians into military. So it picked the most inflammatory one, made it the public agenda, swept the nation to the point that this reviewer, it's in our consciousness. We live in a different reality from the one that the president lived in. His reality was they ambushed me with this agenda. I said, couldn't you control it? Couldn't you say, that's not my choice. We'll get to it when we get around to it. He said then the headline would have been, Clinton repudiates pledge to do this. He has no idea what he's doing. He's, he's zigzagged even on his second day in office. Um, but I said, so that means that you found yourself helpless to control 
your agenda from the very beginning? And he, and he said, yes, because the Times' enormous prestige carried the whole rest of the world along so that to this day they believe that that was my choice and not theirs. So the press is a pretty big um, uh, player, and most of us have absorbed practically everything we know about Clinton indirectly through the filter of the major media. This, my book, is a different filter. It, I'm not saying it's right, but it, 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 it is a balance, and I did my best just to report what he was saying and how he felt about all these issues, including how gays in the military came to dominate the agenda from the first day. Uh, Mr. Branch, I suspect at some point in the recordings you encountered my brother, who was a Secret Service agent in the Clinton White House. But that's not the question I have. Um, <laughs> at the, contemporaneously with these recording sessions, you were immersed, as you mentioned, in the history of the civil rights era. I'm curious what your observations were, knowing that a president like Lyndon Johnson, who was burdened by the Vietnam conflict, still managed to pass all this progressive legislation, and how he compares with Clinton and also with Obama. Hmm. Lyndon Johnson, too, will be reevaluated in, in history, he, and the, the tapes will help us do it. Um, it's been a great embarrassment of, uh, of our lives that um, since 1968, I think his name is scarcely even mentioned at conventions uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, that's how supercharged uh, uh, all of this is. Clinton would often say, by the way, that um, I think he, he, it was some very high figure. He said with almost 80% accuracy, you can predict how people are going to vote by the answer to one question. Do they think that the 1960s on balance were good or bad for America? Uh, that we are still polarized over all of those lessons. Johnson didn't pass much uh, legislation uh, after Vietnam, certainly after Vietnam heated up by the end of 1965. Uh, to me, it was just a chilling coincidence that the 1st Marine Battalions landed at Da Nang on the very day of the march at Bloody Sunday across Pettus Bridge. Um, so that those two stories uh, thereafter, although it took a while for the war to register, uh, were march, marching along in parallel. The Immigration Reform Act that I mentioned earlier was passed in October, it signed in October. By then, we had, we had, uh, were, the battles were large and the war was beginning to get serious. So there are a lot of similarities between uh, Clinton and Johnson uh, uh, in their tactile <laughs> approach to politics. Clinton would say outright that all the wonkism in the world is no good if you can't make human contact with the people that you need alliances with to, to, to make them bear fruit in the world. Um, and he prided himself on his ability to make contact not only with citizens in a, in a receiving line where he would tune out the whole rest of the world. Uh, and he liked that, I mean, uh, uh, but in, in, in political meetings. And he shared that with Johnson, making a contact. He told me once that his biggest failure in foreign policy was that he never made a personal connection with Jiang Zemin, the president of China. And he said, that's a failure on me because our relations and the future of China is really important. And if you don't have uh, a real bond, you know, something about their family, something about their sense of humor, something that can enable you to talk about uh, things other than your implacable differences, uh, you can't begin to break down walls. Uh, and he said the differences with Jiang Zemin were so implacable that one of their... <laughs> he said he was trying to get Jiang Zemin to answer some human rights things, and Jiang Zemin said, um, one day... Uh, we will be talking to you about human rights Chinese style maybe 50 years from now. Um, your cities are uninhabitable, your prisons are full, your schools don't work. Who is to say your freedom is worth it? Uh, and he said, when you hear something like that from a leader, uh, you need something personal <laughs> to come back with. Um, but that's just a small sample of, um, uh, of the raw... Uh, dialogue that he presented and, and, and put on the tapes. You know, most of Clinton's legislative achievements are 
hidden because they're hidden under this press thing and the, and the, the mantra that he didn't care about anything in public, that he, that he was a finger-in-the-wind politician who triangulated at, uh, you know, to the tune of Dick Morris and everything, um, which uh, is pretty hard to reconcile. Uh, there's one chapter in here that we had a session the night before he announced he was going into Haiti um, in 1994. And he said, I'm going in with 8% public support. Uh, my best friend in politics, Dale Bumpers, has just come in and said, the first American casualty, you will be impeached. There is no public support for this. He said, I've got racism working. I had racism working for me briefly when Haitians were washing up on American shores and there was some support for doing something. Then I stopped that while I was building the national, international coalition. And now I have racism working against me because nobody cares about Haiti. Uh, notwithstanding its long history, notwithstanding the notion that if, his, if democracy can make gains in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, it will bear fruit all around the world. But I'm going to do it anyway. And, um, and he did. And almost nobody cared. Uh, almost nobody cares today. But quite apart from what you think of, of, of Haiti, of that mission, and there are lots and lots of details about it in, in the book, um, how, how the mantra could con continue blithely that he never did anything uh, out of conviction when he went into Haiti like that uh, and disregard Haiti and a number of other things like, for example, the NRA. He was after the NRA. He's the only president to go after the NRA from start to finish. The Brady Bill, the assault weapons ban, all of these things. Um, even President Obama prudently said, it's suicide, don't expect any... Uh, gun initiatives from me. Um, this is a matter of conviction, and, and, and yet these images uh, continue. So his, um, his legislative achievements do not compare with Johnson's. He would not claim that. Um, uh, his pursuit of peace mattered a lot. He proved that we can eliminate the national deficit if it matters uh, to us. He was dismayed uh, when he left office, uh, having paid off $600 billion of the national debt in the last year and a half, on, on, with a projection to have paid off the entire national debt by next year, that instead, the na not, that there was no retrospective on the Clinton presidency as to what that would mean to grandchildren and great-grandchildren who would no longer have a public mortgage uh, hanging over them at birth, uh, uh, that they would have to service before they could uh, hire a policeman, a soldier, uh, or, or, or earn a dollar. Um, there was none of that. So his record is better than it is appreciated now. It doesn't compare with Johnson's. Um, his, uh, his failure, which he said was his failure, w was giving away his chance to confront cynicism by allowing the Monica Lewinsky scandal to trump everything else he did and allow people to say, see, I told you so, uh, uh, all politicians are corrupt. He has to live with that. Um, but I think he would rather live with that than uh, to live with Vietnam, uh, which, is what, which is the reason that Lyndon Johnson's uh, reputation is so, so clouded. Mr. Branch, my name is Sal Castro, and as this gentleman talked about his brother working in the White House, the president in 1996 invited me to the White House. But my question is, who, who did the president think were the key players in the vast right-wing conspiracy he and his wife talk, spoke about, and he just spoke about it recently? Well, he never talked about a vast right-wing conspiracy to me. That was Hillary's language. Um, but he talked about things in that vicinity. I mean, the thing about it is vast right-wing conspiracy uh, conspiracy is an infelicitous phrase that allows people to dismiss the whole idea um, of bad press coverage and jaundiced press coverage and trivialized press coverage because uh, I've not found anybody yet who can put into one sentence what Whitewater was um, or, or any of those other things. Uh, so we managed to be utterly consumed for the full eight years uh, by matters that had nothing to do with, with uh, presidential powers. Which, by the way, is the reason that um, um, 
There are a lot of very interesting sessions with Hillary. Hillary was much fiercer on that than he was. Hillary was, said that the greatest uh, mistake that he made as president was to agree to the original Whitewater Special Counsel investigating matters that had nothing to do with the exercise of presidential powers. Um, we have to remember his argument was at the time there was a huge hue and cry and everybody was saying, what do you have to hide? Get it, get it behind you. You're not answering the questions and so on and so forth. And he said the New York Times was saying that and I assumed that it would be fair and I was stupid. Hillary was right. But Hillary's argument, his argument was political. Hers was constitutional. Um, and in the impeachment trial, when we had these uh, sessions during the trial, she was a fiercer uh, uh, opponent in talking to senators and in talking to me on, a, on impeachment, even an impeachment that grew out of a scalding humiliation for her, uh, than he was. He said, this is politics. If they want to throw me out of office, they can do it. And she said, no, Bill. Uh, that would wreck, this, um, wreck our constitutional system if you have an impeachment that's on uh, something uh, like that. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it continued that way uh, all along. On the, the, the only thing about the right-wing conspiracy that he would talk about, he abandoned that. He talked about it a little bit earlier because he kept saying that the Republicans um, were also pushing for Whitewater and pushing anything personal, and they were always doing it. And, and the media were carrying, uh, but particularly the Washington Post and the New York Times, they were the only ones that had the prestige to carry these things. Um, and he wanted to know why they were doing it, and he, and he went through any number of theories. And he never said right-wing conspiracy, but early on he said it was, um, for, um, um, it was co for convergent reasons, that the media were selling newspapers on things that were easier to understand and more personal, and they could do it, and it was easier to kind of uh, uh, egg that along. And that the, right, the, the Republicans were doing it for political reasons because they, they knew how to say no and, 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 and they, they didn't have a public agenda to run on. They didn't have a positive agenda to run on, so they had to have a negative, and the, and the personal negative one worked better than a political negative one. The political negatives, if you, if you just say no all the time, eventually you're going to run to the end of the road. Uh, and they never ran to the end of the road in, in scandals. They went uh, all the way to the end. Um, but he had all kind of other theories about why the media uh, were doing this too, um, uh, including the, the standard of living of most of the people in the media who were much, much wealthier uh, relative to the rest of the population than they had been in our heyday of journalism. When he said, Taylor, do you remember when I came up to Boys Club and famously shook Jack Kennedy's hand, I saw reporters and people out eating bag lunches uh, on, on Connecticut Avenue. Can you imagine um, Tim Russert eating a, in a bag lunch? <laughs> said, these people don't know anybody about, they, they don't care about health care or welfare. They don't know anything. So that was another whole, rank, that, that the media were too rich uh, to care about the stake that ordinary people had in political decisions that affected their lives. And then later he was, he, uh, as I mentioned, this structural thing. Uh, saying that he thought maybe, which was, he was almost trying to be sympathetic, saying, you know, maybe they don't have any choice because they see their, their market uh, vanishing and they feel that they've got to compete and, and do things that are beneath them. He was always mystified by Maureen Dowd, saying that she only writes, um, and there's one, <laughs> there's one, Maureen Dowd is, um, well, she's upset about some of these things, but she... Um, <laughs> She wrote a column uh, right after Tiger Woods won, won his first Masters in 1997 called Tiger's Double Bogey, uh, in which <laughs> she said that um, Clinton invited Tiger up to the White House after he won his first Masters. He's 21 or whatever. And Tiger turned him down because he had to go somewhere and uh, he had another engagement. Clinton didn't think anything of it. He's telling me this story. And he said, so she smears Tiger saying that he's dissing the President of the United States. Who does he think he is? He's a 21-year-old whippersnapper. He's just trying to make money. 
uh, and he's into the green of his green jacket. And he said, and then she managed to turn around in the next sentence and light into me for craving, she said, craving the aura of celebrity athletes and being green with jealousy for his, so it's one huckster and this huckster. And, he, and, and so he said, she got both of us because Tiger won the Masters. He said, and then he said, kind of this puzzled look, and he says, I, I really think that she must live in mortal fear that somebody somewhere is, li is living a healthy and productive life. <laughs> I, I, had to I had to quote that. <laughs> that's, that. That's in the book. But the media is a mystery. But for us in the public square, the media is a challenge because for all the cussing, we still need it, and if we don't have it, we've got to replace it. It is a key to the citizenship to be informed and to have information. That's why uh, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. I still really look up to the New York Times a lot of times in spite of all of these disappointments. Um, when I went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina and dropped my pre-med courses, I took my first political science philosophy course, and on the first day, the professor said to me in Chapel Hill, to our class, if you want to study, if you want to solve problems of justice and, and politics in American life, the first thing you have to do is to read the New York Times every day. But my, I still remember that. I had hardly even heard of the New York Times. <laughs> but I, I, I have read it, and I still read it every day, and I shudder for what things are going to be like uh, when there is no New York Times, uh, or at least as we know it. Thank you.